If you will, please join me in prayer. Lord God, we approach you humbly and ask that you send your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to teach us, Lord, from your word, that, Lord, the truths that are communicated from it, Lord, would be purely from you, and that from this, Lord, you would help us to grow in our sanctification, and that we would love Jesus all the more. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. In our main passage this morning, we're going to have a marvelous opportunity to get such a small glimpse of heaven on earth. The event of the transfiguration is so important that it's recorded in all three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Luke, and Mark. And we shall see why in just a moment. But before we begin Matthew chapter 17, I need to exposit and complete the last verse of Matthew 16. I told you last week I wanted to say verse 28 for today. Now, I did so because, first, this verse can be controversial to some, and I didn't want to lose the momentum of Jesus' call to genuine discipleship in the verses that preceded it. And we'll still have a, a little more time to consider that this morning. And second, this last revelation of Jesus where he states to his followers, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom makes a natural transition from chapters 16, verses 13 through 27, to the transfiguration in chapter 17. A question arises concerning what does Jesus mean when he says the coming kingdom here? And there are three major interpretations of this verse with some variations of each, but the most controversial one comes from the dispensational camp. In this view, Jesus is speaking about the full consummation of the kingdom when he returns in glory for the final judgment and the restoration of the new earth, what we call the second coming. They take the words coming kingdom to refer to that event since Jesus speaks about the recompense here in verse 27. Now, you can see that would be quite controversial because all of the disciples are at this point in time physically dead, and the second coming has yet to occur. And that could make Jesus out to be a liar. Therefore, they place an emphasis on this phrase, taste death. Using passages like John chapter 8, verse 52, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 56, and Hebrews 2, 9, they interpret this passage to say that those who are saved among Jesus' followers do not ever taste the sting of death or the eternal consequences of death. In other words, because I'm a believer, I'll never experience the final consequence of sin's penalty in my death throughout the duration as I wait Jesus' return in his second coming. Now, the problem here is what do you do with the Greek word eos, which translated in English is the word until? Does this mean somehow a believer does taste death after the Lord's second coming? Now, this seems to be reading into a text a particular theolo uh, theological position rather than just letting the, the verse speak for itself. In such circumstances, I tend to go with the plain meaning of the text. Perhaps this particular verse, verse 28, is not meant to be a proof text for dispensationalism. That eschatological position does not hinge on this one verse. But I think something else entirely is implied here. Now, the second interpretation is an emphasis on seeing the Son of Man coming into his kingdom, meaning physically laying eyes upon Jesus in all of his glory. And in this view, they believe that Jesus is referring to what occurs in the very next scene of the transfiguration when Jesus radiates his glory. 
Only Peter, James, and John saw it. Therefore, they must be the sum in verse 28. They would say that this saying by our Lord precedes that event in all three synoptic gospels, so surely Jesus must be referring to the transfiguration. Maybe. The third interpretation is that Jesus is referring to his later resurrection. Remember, this teaching did not begin at verse 27, but reaches all the way back to verse 21 when Jesus referred to his own death and resurrection when Jesus was, or excuse me, when Peter was trying to usurp Jesus' plans. But once Jesus has completed his work, he takes his rightful office within space-time history as king, not because he was any less divine or any less royal during his earthly walk, but because his mission is complete. He has retaken or redeemed his people to himself. And as he declares at the end of his gospel in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is speaking of the time when his work as the sinless lamb demonstrated and his perfect propitiation offered is complete and the church in age begins. And those are to continue all the way through the second coming when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. Those that hold this view believe that the vast majority of the disciples did witness his resurrected body. And we must remember that there were those that followed Jesus off and on in his ministry, not just the 12. You have examples like Matthias and Barsabbas being two of them that found in Acts chapter 1. And even one of the 12, Judas, died before the resurrection. And so that would account for the word some mentioned here. Now I'm going to leave it to you to arrive at which interpretation works best for you. I found myself repeatedly in the third camp. It seems to me to be the best rendering of the verse in its overall context. And maybe as we proceed, you will uh, see other links as well here. And I'm going to make mention of it here again at the end, but let's proceed on to the next chapter. Now, there are six distinct sections in verse 13. I've listed those on your outline. You have the setting described. Then we see the miracle of Jesus with Moses and Elijah, which elicits a response from Peter. God the Father responds to Peter and his peers. Then Jesus speaks, which raises a question about Elijah. And we're going to walk through each of those briefly and then take a moment to ask ourselves, why? Why does this occur? Why is it so important that it's portrayed in all three synoptics? And possibly what relevance does it have for us today, especially on a day when we pray for the persecuted church? So let's deal with the setting. It's six days later. References to specific times are rare in the synoptics, so many have speculated why this occurs six days after Jesus' challenge to discipleship. And after reading all the options, I am convinced this is not anything symbolic, but it notes the passage of time, possibly the time it took to get to this particular mountain. But to the disciples who relate this story, both to Mark and to Luke, they will see what occurs next linked with the events back in chapter 16. And on this occasion, Jesus separates Peter, James, and John from his other followers, and he leads them up to a mountaintop. Now, there are three possibilities as to which of these mountains this might be near Caesarea Philippi. Mount Tabor, Mount Harmon, and Mount Miron. None of the synoptics specify which ones it was. But what is uh, significant here is that for the other two characters that show up with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, each of them met God on a mountaintop. In Exodus 19 and 24, Moses met with God at Mount Sinai. 
In 1 Kings 19, Elijah met with God on the mountain when he spoke to him in his still, small voice. Another theophany is getting ready to happen here. But on this occasion, God's servants come to meet with him. And Jesus chooses three disciples to be witnesses to testify to this event after his resurrection. According to Deuteronomy 19.15, legal testimony must be corroborated by two or three witnesses. Jesus is going to say the same for church discipline later in Matthew 18, verses 16 and 19. And that there's got to be two to three witnesses to establish some kind of charge. And Paul's going to concur with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. These three are chosen to validate this event. And we might ask, well, why these three? Well, already, like we pointed to a few weeks ago, Peter's place is restored despite the fact that he tried to rebuke Jesus in chapter 16, verse 22. James will be one of the first disciples that are martyred. And John will be the oldest living disciple. All would be credible witnesses as to what they're about to see. And these same three will also give testimony as to what they witnessed of Jesus' agony in the garden prayer that night that he was betrayed into the hands of sinners. Next we see that Peter, James, and John will get a glimpse of heavenly glory. As Jesus and his clothing radiated light like the sun, no doubt each disciple would have associated that event with the Shekinah glory that appeared to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses' own face from that event began to reflect light for a period of time. And later, in Matthew chapter 28, after the resurrection, Jesus will appear to Mary Magdalene in the garden, radiating this same light. And John's going to see it again in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, when Jesus commands him to write his letters to the church. It must have been a startling sight to see. But Jesus is not alone. Beside him was Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet. Now, don't lose sight of their offices here. Both the law and the prophets testify to Jesus being the Messiah, validating what Peter confessed in chapter 16, verse 16. Matthew's gospel has been using the law and the prophecies, portraying that Jesus is the Messiah all throughout his gospel. And now, the lawgiver and the prophet that precedes the Messiah are both present affirming the office of Messiah in Jesus. These two men are conversing with Jesus. Now, I've seen some pretty spectacular things in my life, and I've been witness to some amazing panels of some, some very famous theologians, but can you imagine sitting in and listening to the conversations with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus? Talk about a theological nerd's paradise. Wow. Which is probably why it evokes this response from Peter. Peter, 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 and not the pumpkin eater. He is always the impetuous one, isn't he? He's the first to leap out of the boat, the first to speak up and say, you are the Christ, the one who tries to rebuke Jesus. And, and here he missteps again here. Peter sees these two greats of Judaism, and he states the obvious. Lord, it is good that we are here. You think, Peter? Now, we need to be careful in reading that. Peter is including Jesus in that we statement. As in how fortunate we are that the four of us just happen to be here just as Moses and Elijah arrived. And that's where he missteps. But he also demonstrates his servant's heart here. 
I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, so we can remain up here. Again, Peter is missing the forest for the trees. He is enamored with these two celebrities of Moses and Elijah appearing, and he's making them out to be equal with Jesus. And that is why the Father intervenes here. Peter is still offering his service when a bright cloud appears over him and a booming voice projects from it. And don't miss this third witness here along with Moses and Elijah. God the Father speaks aloud. And like the law and the prophets testifies to the true identity of Jesus, so too does the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now this is the second time that the Father has affirmed the Son. The first was at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. But remember, these three disciples were not around yet to hear this same voice spoken the first time. But they do hear it now. And the Father says Jesus is his Son, describing the relationship to him. He says Jesus is his beloved. The Father absolutely dotes on the Son in every way. And the Father finds no fault in Jesus. He is well pleased with him. Along the way to the cross, the Father is affirming Jesus is the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. But in addition to affirming that Jesus is the Son, is the Father's most important instruction to Peter here. Listen to him. Listen to him. Peter was so wrapped up into the presence of Moses and Elijah, but the Father is saying, Peter, the real authority is my Son. He is the preeminent one over all things. Moses and Elijah are merely witnesses and forerunners to the Son. The one you need to be captivated with here is Jesus. Listen to him. And sadly, Peter represents so many of us that put the cart before the horse. But we get so busy serving, we just jump into action. But like the sisters Martha and Mary in Luke 10, this was not a time to be busy or distracted. This was a time to listen to the Son. And I would dare say that this is the main problem with the contemporary church overall. We're, we're acting without listening first, making vast assumptions, and missing out on the most important thing, Jesus. You can see the disciples' reaction here in verse 6. When they heard this voice, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. And it is now that the gentle and lowly Jesus intervenes. They have their faces on the ground. He, he could have just spoke, but his actions reveal a tenderness. And he touched them. Three filthy sinners and the beloved Son of God touches them. And he assures them, rise and have no fear. The three men look up, and now Moses and Elijah are gone. No more bright cloud, only Jesus, the one whom the voice commanded, listen to him. Why? Because all that these men needed is found in Jesus. The one who is holding them, touching them, commanding them to stand before him and have no fear, they can come to him and find rest. For after all, it will be Jesus who willingly will put himself upon the cross on behalf of these men. 
This beloved son with whom the father is well pleased will become the acceptable sacrifice to take away their sins. At the cross, Jesus will take upon himself the wrath that they deserved. In exchange, he will give them his spotless righteousness that will enable them to stand before the father without fear. The one that will do that is standing before them now, holding them, touching them. I may sound sentimental, but I can't help but replay the words of Bill Gaither's hymn in my mind. <laughs> used to listen to it all the time in my childhood. He touched me. Oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me, and he made me whole. Lyrics resonate with me because I desire to know the touch of Jesus. To know a simple touch, yes. I find you worthy. You no longer have to fear. The four make their descent down the mountain, and as they do so, he orders them not to tell anyone what they saw until after he's raised from the dead. Now, we know he's referring to his person as he's used this title, Son of Man of Himself, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, and also at verse 28. This is the fifth and final time in this gospel that Jesus commands his disciples to keep silent on a matter. The most recent was back in chapter 16, verse 20. And as we've noted these instances, Jesus has his reasons to keep such information private. He had a difficult enough time keeping his disciples from jumping to conclusions about his messiahship, much less the general population. He will do things in his own timing. But note here that the silence is not forever. There will be a time when the ban will be lifted and all things can be revealed after his resurrection and his work to establish his kingdom is complete on the earth. But now, before these three men arrive at their destination, before the ban is in place, they don't want to lose an opportunity to ask Jesus a question concerning what they saw. Already back in chapter 11, verse 15, uh, 14, Jesus had confirmed that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. But now, Peter, James, and John just saw the living Elijah, and they want to know, if Jesus is the Messiah that must suffer, how is it that in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, Elijah has to turn the hearts of the fathers and children before the destruction of all things? How would they answer the scribes about Elijah coming first? Well, Jesus affirms that the scribes had the story perfectly true. Yes, Elijah comes. In fact, he comes to restore all things, meaning a returning of the hearts to the people towards God in a specific way. To return to God's original purpose. That's what John has been doing. Remember his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, one is coming after me whose sandals I am not fit to fasten. When John saw Jesus, he yelled out to his own followers, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then to those same, he stated, He must increase, I must decrease. Yes, John fulfilled his role. He pointed everyone he could to the Messiah, the only one that could reconcile sinners to a holy God. So Jesus answers in verse 12, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood what, that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Yes, Elijah the forerunner came, the one whom even the scribes would admit must come first. Yes, he came, and how did they treat him? 
they killed him. And they're going to do the same to the Son of Man. And Jesus is affirming his own prediction from Matthew 11 when he said, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. They will mistreat Jesus just like they did John. So what has just happened in these 13 verses? Why was this important? Let me get you to consider three lessons from this event. And all three lessons reinforce the message that Jesus has been teaching all along in chapter 16. First, don't miss the fact that Moses and Elijah, though they died physically centuries earlier, are still alive. This is a glimpse of heaven on earth. Their existence alongside Jesus at this moment proves the afterlife and the coming resurrection. Peter, James, and John were able to recognize them, which when I am asked if we'll recognize one another in heaven, I often point to this passage. They appeared to have some sort of bodies. They were able to speak and make words with their mouths and and converse as living, sentient beings. Folks, this is exciting. By the power of God, heaven is real. I I don't need to know it was real because some kid had a near-death experience and wrote a book about it. I know it's real because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits. If he is alive, then our loved ones who died in faith are alive. And we will see them again. And we ourselves in the faith will be raised all because Jesus made a way for us. And that is proof enough. Second, don't miss what the God, the Father here is saying to these men. The most important thing in life is not obedience to the law. It's not fulfilled prophecies. It's what the scriptures point to. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the law and the prophets. He is who they testify and affirm. Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Do you hear that? Thrones? Dominions, rulers, authorities, any government right now on this earth, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You want what God has to offer? Then you come to Jesus. You don't get it by your personal obedience to the law. You don't get it from looking at the tea leaves or searching out prophecies of something else or something more that you're expecting to come because he has already come and he has completed the work for you. There is no other name under heaven or earth that you can be saved by than through Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of Moses. He is Lord of Elijah. He is Lord of Peter, James, and John. If you want eternal life, you come to him by faith and you receive him as your Lord. You deny self, you take up your cross, you follow him because he is God. 
And then there is the, the big lesson throughout all of this. As the Messiah, Jesus has said he must suffer at the hands of the elders and chief priests. He must be killed in a particular manner, and he just affirmed in verse 12 that would be the case once again. But he also said he would rise again from the dead. He affirms that in verse 9. And he just provided concrete proof that two individuals that suffered much in their lifetime who denied themselves and took up their own crosses to be obedient to God, Elijah and Moses, they may have to give up their lives, but they found it. And the proof was in the pudding. They both stood alive in front of these disciples. Remember those words, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That promise was just reinforced in these three disciples, witnessing this, seeing this. It gave them a glimpse of the things of God versus the things of man. I hear so often how powerless we are, as though the the ultra-liberals or the alt-right or the media or the communists or the terrorists are just going to plow over us. We are powerless. We're we're helpless. What are we going to do? Oh, my goodness, folks, don't fear the ones that can harm the body. We fear the one that can destroy both body and soul. And by the blood of his son, he is on our side. And we will live forever. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. When you become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of his promises are yea and amen. They are yours. They are yours because they have been secured by his own blood. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. You can deny self. You can take up your cross. You can follow him because he has secured your future. This is what the martyrs that we pray for are counting for. They're counting on this security. We're not waiting for this world to change. We are waiting for the next one. We're waiting for Christ to come. And the proof of it has been given to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a reason that we stand firm. And in this, we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, we've been grieved by various trials. So the testingness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though we have not seen him, we love him, don't we? We do. We keep enduring. Why? Because he is the one that has secured our souls. We may not see him now, but we believe in him and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, which is obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We will stand before him. And we can because of what Christ has done. Church, in Jesus, we have all that we need. We have all that we need. Listen to him. We can endure, and we can triumph to the very end. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you season our souls right now with the truth of your word. 
I talked to so many brothers and sisters who were discouraged about what they see happening around them. But Lord, your word has been telling us over and over and over again that we will have to endure and that we will have to persevere for your sake. And you have promised us, Lord, that if we would lose our lives for your sake, then we will find it. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us to set our minds on the things of God and not on the things of this world. We pray, Lord, that we would look forward to your glorious coming and that, Lord, we have a security of the Holy Spirit within us to draw us to your word, to remind us of Jesus' glorious resurrection, which proves, Lord, that even if we are called to die for our faith, we still live. So, Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen our souls. Strengthen our faith. Help us to endure. Help us to be gospel witnesses, Lord, wherever you place us. We pray this in the finished work of God alone. Amen.